This is a Clock Shelves Podcast Network production. and welcome to another episode of MCU and me. As always, I am Paul Casey and I'm joined uh, once again by someone who I love talking to. Go ahead and reintroduce yourself, sir. Hello, this is Steve Peterson. Steve, welcome back to the show. And we are here today to discuss Thor, well, Thor 2, Thor the Dark World, or as I affectionately refer to it, Loki 3. (laughs) That would have been a better title for sure. (laughs) So, um, quick backstory. This was, uh, I've talked before on the podcast. This was actually the first of the Marvel films I went to see in theaters. Um, just a quick refresher for everybody. I got into it because of the agents of shield show and whatever. And so this would be the first one that I actually went to see in theaters. And ironically, I went to see this one in theaters twice I went to see it by myself, and then I went, I believe, with my mother to go see it. Um, And even back then, I was referring to it as Loki 3. And it's kind of funny because uh, now, and Steve and I kind of talked about this um, off mic a bit in the preparation for this, this ranks pretty low on most people's kind of list of uh, Marvel movies and I have to say, having just rewatched it again not long before we're recording this, I still would not put it up high. So it kind of makes me chuckle that this is the one I've probably seen the most out of all of the, the Marvel movies. Yeah, I just we watched the entire series um, after we did the the Avengers episode. Um, I've been dying to rewatch, you know, the entire Marvel Universe um, after uh, the saga ended. So uh, I finally did that. And I actually enjoyed dark world, uh, more than, than the first Thor and much more than Ragnarok. Um, I think it gets kind of a bad rap for this movie. It's, it's not bad, uh, but it's definitely not top tier Marvel. Um, so even when watching the series again, I just kind of find myself playing on my phone or just not paying hundred percent attention to this one. The, uh, the, the thing I will say is that, Obviously, there are things in this. I mean, technically, you could say it about any of them because, as I, as we've kind of talked about on the on the podcast, it's very much almost like a TV show, right? Where it's you know everything is kind of serialized at least to a certain extent. Like a B and C story may continue into the next film. The the mid credits scene in particular um, kind of feeds into what the some of the next uh, films are going to be and whatever. But there was a lot of stuff upon because I haven't watched this uh, since I went, you know, since I watched it in theaters all those years ago. Um, But this one definitely has things that now looking back at some of the later uh, Avengers movies and even Ragnarok and things like that, I see myself going, oh, okay, oh, that that's referenced later. And and even just the, the concept, I mean, not, you know, we don't really do like too much in terms of spoilers, but obviously since we're covering this movie, we could talk about the fact that um, like Friga passes away and things like that. And that does get referenced 
um, you know, in some of the later things. And so like, I had forgotten that that was actually in this uh, film. So it was nice to be like, Oh, okay. That's where that was. And, you know, like little, little things like that. And, and so it, it is kind of nice to go back and rewatch. But like I said, for me personally, I, I just don't, I get it in terms of where they were going with the story. It seems a lot of, to me at least, it seems a lot of the the phase two films, um, the sequel ones uh, at least in in phase two were more kind of darker. And I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way, but I feel like to a certain extent they might have been leaning a bit too heavily on sort of that old Star Wars thing. You know, everybody with the original Star Wars trilogy, people often say, um, you know, that Empire Strikes Back is the best one, because, you know, and it's it's so dark and it's so edgy and it, and it ends on such a negative thing. And, and I feel like uh, a lot of the sequel films in Phase 2 almost rely kind of heavily on that, that, that they, that they tried to go a little bit darker with it after, after phase one being kind of let's introduce the characters, you know, kind of set up. I don't want to say that it's happy, but kind of set things up. And then like Iron Man three, pretty dark, um, you know, Thor two, pretty dark. Uh, the, the next one after this is going to be Captain America civil or not civil war. Um, the winter soldier, a pretty dark film, you know, like it's just, that movie is amazing though. Oh, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's one of the best. Like in my top five Marvel, it's such a good one, but I mean, yeah, I definitely agree. They they definitely went darker um, with phase two, but you kind of have to because, you, like you said, the first phase is kind of not happy, but it's a very positive kind of jokey, family-friendly type of movies. Um, and then where do you go from there? You have to break them down to give them something to fight for again. So, Yeah, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll give you that for sure. It's just uh, especially after seeing, like I said, like Iron Man 3 not too long ago to cover for the show and, and just kind of looking at everything overall, I feel like this one, I would honestly say this is probably one of the darkest, no pun intended because it's Thor the Dark World, but this is probably one of the darkest um, of the, the Marvel films that I can at least think of offhand. And I don't know, it just, for me... I mean, I like the story. I like the the um, like getting to know more about their sort of version of Norse mythology and you know the nine realms. And one of my favorite scenes in this one in particular is um, when we see the birds fly one way and then they come you know out another way when the when the the everything is converging and all that. Like there's various things that I that I like about this movie, like little bits and pieces. But for whatever reason, just overall, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't rank this one in one of my, like I said, one of my top films. Yeah, for me, I think it's just because it's a Thor movie. I, I just don't think they work standalone, at least not for me. Um, I know when the first one came out, I didn't really care for it because you had Iron Man, which is a very scientific uh, kind of reality-based technology. Uh, and then Hulk was the same thing. It was a serum that... You know, the radiation turned him into the Hulk. And Captain America was the super soldier serum and it was all very much like science based stuff. And then you have Thor come out and he has, you know, magical flying hammers and rainbow bridges and whatever. And it just didn't seem to fit the series. Uh, and then same thing with this one. Like it just it feels kind of 
fantasy, which I mean what it is, it's a fantasy movie and it, it makes sense. They even say in the first one that, you know, our their magic is our science or our our magic is their science, whatever it was. Um but I, I just never got into the Thor ones, but when he's in the Avengers, like I think he's a blast to watch and he's a lot of fun. But as a standalone film, he just doesn't do it for me, unfortunately. I, I think I would I would I don't necessarily agree on not liking the Thor movies because I, I, I do like the Thor movies and I do like that sort of fantasy thing. And I think that the Avengers films themselves uh, very much um, they balance that really well. And I, I think we talked about that sort of in the Avengers um, episode where we said how, uh, like I said, I thought Joss Whedon did a very good job. And even John Favreau at the time made the comment on, you know, it was going to be a difficult task to sort of balance the science that he kind of developed with Iron Man mixed with the fantasy of, of Thor and, and things like that. Um, but I, I like the, the, the way, and I think one of the reasons really quick that uh, uh, Thor kind of works in the Avengers is because he's very much almost like a fish out of water sort of where, you know, he's because he doesn't quite understand sort of the earth concepts on a lot of things so he's very much there for a lot of the a, a lot of the jokes um but like i said i i like this i like the fact that um you know like i said we get a lot more of the of their version of sort of the norse mythology i like the like i said the viking funeral for for friga i like i don't know i don't tend to like effects heavy stuff or action heavy stuff that much in in terms of like films and things but when we see asgard um in in this movie in particular because we see a lot of asgard because jane gets taken there and you know all that I, i i don't know there's something about it where i think they've done a fantastic job because it's like to me it seems just on the cusp of being real like there's a part of me that wants to to you know ha- I want to go back into like that childlike wonderment where I just want to believe that it's real all over again you know and that's one thing I I don't like personally about having you know become an adult and and people are right it was a trap to do that because there are certain things where you just can't necessarily look at at least me I can't necessarily look at that at the film and say okay uh it's it's real like oh that they they built like it's a real place like no i like look i look at it and say okay no that's effects it's really good effects but whatever but it all it, i'm just on the cusp of that childlike wonderment where i look at asgard or i look at the the various uh places like even when she gets su- when uh, jane gets kind of sucked through the wall and and she you know the 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 ether like takes over her and everything and i i just look at the effects on that and it's so close enough to being realistic for me that I just, I love it. And even though, like you said, it's, it's kind of, it's very fantasy and whatever. I actually, I really enjoy that aspect of the, of the series. And I enjoyed it as well. Just, I, I think initially when the first one came out, it just, it didn't fit with the feel of the universe they created. Um, just because it seems so realistic, not realistic, obviously these are superheroes, but it seemed more, science and reality based um but then to throw the magic in there just seemed kind of weird but i mean i I think for this one it works um especially since now we're getting into more of the um after avengers we had the stuff in space we have more of the the universal stuff going on um and then especially with this one they mention 
the Infinity Stones for the first time. So now we understand that there's this whole big, you know, uh, thing going on, and the the other realms seem to fit more, I guess, as opposed to in the first uh, phase one, where everything seemed a bit more reality based. And I think that's I think that's definitely part of it, right? Because like you said, like after Avengers, it kind of opened up the concept of it is the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's not just, you know, Marvel Earth based things. And I, I, that's one of the things that I do like uh, sort of about the, the direction that they that they've taken the films and, and the entirety of the cinematic universe, including TV and, and all that is the fact that they've now made it, you know, similar to the comics in that way that it is, you know, you're going to go to different worlds. You're going to go to, you know, different parts of space. Like I I said, you know, after this one is um, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, I believe the next film after that is Guardians of the Galaxy, which is completely Uh on the, you know, opposite end of everything that we've seen so far in terms of, you know, where it is in space and stuff. And, and I, I really, I mean, Growing up, I was a huge, uh, you know, we watched Star Trek and Star Wars and all that sort of stuff in my house. So, you know, being, you know, kind of in space and seeing the the expansion of all of this, I, I really like that. And like I said, and, and I agree with you, I think it fits in well with the mythology of at least the Thor movies, because like we have in this one, uh, the dark elves and, you know, we hear more about sort of the beginning of the universe. And like you said, the infinity stones with the, with the ether and, and all of that. Like I, 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 as much as I'm saying, like, I can't say enough nice things about this film for whatever reason, it's still, I don't know what it is about the movie. It just, overall like i said there's little there's there's things i like about it just when it's all put together i find myself going meh but as i'm talking about it i keep realizing like there are more and more things that i like about the movie i think just compared to some of the other ones it doesn't hold up like because i think that this one a lot um i believe our friend kelly from holland coined well i don't know if she coined the phrase but she kind of introduced it to me um, in an episode of Lost with Friends, where I, at one point I called uh, a few episodes like filler episodes, and she said they're more setting the table because they're kind of setting up things that are to come. And I would argue that this film sort of is that for me because this continues the story of Thor. It continues the story of Loki as we see throughout, um, and it it kind of sets up the the grander scheme as much as part of the Avengers and even Iron Man three did this sort of sets up this grander scheme of, like I said, there's the entire universe out there that we're going to now explore through, like I said, guardians, we get to see Dr. Strange later, the future, uh, Thor film and so on and so forth. Yeah. Like you're saying is weird. Cause in theory, the movie is, is really good. There's a lot of the, the action scenes are great. Um, the story with the, the ether and the origins of the Dark Elves, it's all really interesting. But overall, yeah, there's just something about it where it's just it's not a great movie. And I'm wondering if that maybe it's because just compared to something like Avengers or, um, you know, stuff that's surrounding it, you know, when you go back and watch it, it's nowhere close to being as good as um, uh, Winter Soldier. Uh, so it might be one of those type of things where just in comparison, it's, it doesn't seem as great. But I know when I watched it in the theater, um, 
I loved it. I thought it was a great movie. Um, the first one I said I wasn't a super huge fan of, but this one I really enjoyed. I went back and watched it again in the theater. Um, but yeah, watching it now, it's just, it's, I think it's cause I've seen so much of the other stuff and it's just, everything else is so much higher. And this is just, like you said, it's setting the table for what's to come and it probably could have cut it down a bit or I don't know. No, I, I would agree. And like, similar to you, like I said, I also went and saw this one because if I hadn't liked it, I, I wouldn't have gone to see it, you know, a second time in, in theaters. And there were certain moments that I couldn't wait to look forward to. Like I said, that moment with the with the birds, um, there's a moment, you know, a cameo by uh, Chris Evans as Steve Rogers, kind of. Um, like we said, kind of at the beginning, almost anything to do with with Loki. Um and, you know, there's there's various things. And I one of the things that I think, um, and this is just my personal opinion, with, and it's not just Thor, I think it is kind of the, the individual movies. And it's something, I believe we talked about it a little bit, at least in the Avengers, but something that I wouldn't necessarily say the Avengers is lacking. But one of the things I like about the individual uh, movies more than some, like the team up movies is you get a lot of the secondary characters, you know, like the Darcy character. Like I couldn't imagine like a Thor movie. Like, I mean, I, you know, like whatever, but like, it's just so, so difficult to, to like not have her be in this movie because she's very much like, you know, some of the, the comedic relief. She, you know, she helps uh, provide context for certain things. Like she's the one who, you know, Jane Foster is on a date at the very beginning and, you know, she has to come and sort of give the exposition, but Kat Dennings delivers it in such a way that, you know, it, it feels organic. It doesn't necessarily feel like exposition. Um, you know, she's very funny. Uh, we have, um, Stellan Skarsgård as Eric Selvig again and he has to kind of rectify everything that he did in the Avengers and you know there's even a moment when Thor says to him at one point that you know Loki is dead and he's so happy about that because you know Loki took advantage of him and you know at the end of uh or in the Avengers I should say and you know there's there's kind of the secondary characters which I feel like in a film like this and the other standalone films they as much as it's about, you know, the main character or even like secondary, if you want to count like Loki as, you know, one of the main characters, I, I feel like it's some of those, uh, those secondary characters or the supporting characters that help make these, that kind of the team up movies don't necessarily have. We kind of talked, like I said, we talked about that, I believe in the Avengers discussion, the fact that um, like Pepper Potts is like one of the only supporting characters that was in the Avengers movie, you know, and, you know, Selvig was there as well, but most of the other, you know, supporting characters weren't there because they had to rely on each other versus relying on their individual teams. But that's one of the things that I like about these movies is those secondary characters. Yeah. They help to flesh out the world a bit more and kind of, you know, build it a better a universe, like you're saying in Avengers and whatever, it's just the the main group, and you don't really have anything else that helps to kind of bring it down. Like the Darcy character, she's kind of like the, the everyman that you know we don't understand all the science we're talking about, so she has to explain that and make it have sense to to us as the audience. Um, whereas in Avengers and stuff, it's just like, oh, we'll go do this thing, and you know, there's no really explanation. It's just it's done, and 
I get what you're saying. You know, I, you said about explaining the science. I wonder if that's the thing that kind of turns me off about this movie. Not that I don't understand the science or I don't understand the the mythology about it. Um, I believe it's something that you and I talked about when we did um, Iron Man 2 and we said about, or I, well, I said about how some of the the villains don't reappear. Whereas in the comics... You know, uh, you, they're they're gonna have the people who reappear. The vil, you know, they don't just defeat the villain and and then that's it. And f- but for the most part in the movies, the villain is there for one, except for you know Loki, of course. But for the most part, the villains are there for one, and and then they're done and and whatever. Whereas you know, like in like you're a Batman fan, like the Joker is a reoccurring villain. He comes back every so often. Same with you know your Penguin or your Riddler or whatever. And, you know, the, the Marvel characters have that, but in the films, they don't necessarily. And I wonder if sort of that concept, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm basically going to apply that here to sort of this mythology, right? Because like in the first Thor, we found out that there are the nine realms and, you know, there's there was the birth of the of the universe and all that. And now here in this one, we find out, well, then there were the dark elves and they want to, you know, put darkness back to the, the universe and all this other stuff. And then it just feels like, and I, I understand that a film does this and, and I've said more than once across various things that I do. I like TV more than film because you can, tell a story in a a longer form, especially like a, you know, because if it's a serialized thing, right? Like you get more time to flesh out things. I feel like a lot of this film is rushed in what they're trying to tell us because suddenly it's, there's the dark elves. They're going after the ether. They're going to try to destroy the, the, the nine realms. Suddenly we happen to be at the exact point, uh, you know, it's another 5,000 years have passed. We find the ether and now the dark elves are back. The nine realms are, are getting ready to converge and it all happens in the course of, you know, two hours that we're watching it. And I feel like it's not so much that I didn't understand the science or the mythology or whatever. I, I think one of the things that, like I said, that kind of turns me off about this movie is the fact that everything was so rushed in what the story was. Does that make sense? Uh, it does. But at the same time, I think they could have cut a lot of stuff out. Like one issue with the, the 5,000 years or whatever it was for the convergence. It's another one of those kind of convenient timing things. Um, where they just happen to have this thing happening right as all the other infinity stones start showing up. So it's really convenient that it happens to pop up at the same time. Uh, I mean, what if we were at, you know, year 2,500 and we had another 2,500 years to go before the reality stone, you know, the ether showed up. How would Thanos' plan affect that? It's just, it's one of those convenient things where it's just like, Hey, we'll throw it in now and it works out. But I don't know. No, I mean, I, you know, that's that's one of those things. And, you know, it's uh, the, the you know, the coincidence of it sort of thing. Like you said, like it's oh, all of these things just so happen to be happening now. And and I totally get that. And I feel like that's a like a concession that you have to make when you're talking about almost any, you know, film or, or TV series or whatever. It's like, oh, all of this just happens to be you know, now that everything is happening. 
Uh, and I, I definitely don't disagree. I just, like I said, I feel like, like even the concept of like Thanos was referenced in the Avengers and then we see it takes another, well, two films, right? Yeah, because then Iron Man was in between this. So then there's there's another, there's Avengers, then there's Iron Man 3, then there's this. And that talks about, you know, we have like the Infinity Stones sort of mentioned. And then I believe it's not until Guardians when the next thing basically regarding the Infinity Stones is mentioned or whatever. And that was sort of a slow build of this thing and I get it because that was for the entire film franchise that they were doing that but I just feel like the the thing of oh it's and I and I, I like I said I completely get what you're saying where it's like oh now it just so happens to be these 5,000 years because it works for the the plot of this movie but it's just the whole thing for me of we're gonna now we're going to learn about the Dark Elves. Then we're going to have, oh, it just so happens to be these 5,000 years and whatever. And they just gave us so much information and so much sort of rushed plot, in my opinion, that not that it didn't feel, but it, it almost didn't feel like it was worth anything in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Because like it's, okay, so we just learned, we as the audience just learned this information less than two hours ago and it's already solved you know like i i I said uh before we started talking about this and i've said it again on various episodes of this show and whatever like i'm a a big fan of buffy i've mentioned it many times but they had sort of season-long things where it's like oh no the and it you know it always worked out where the season finale or roughly the season finale would be the big apocalypse that they have to stop but they would at least have the entire season and, you know, every three or four episodes we would learn another piece and we would we would find out this information or whatever. And then it would all be applied at the end of the season for the big final showdown, whereas this was just sort of here's everything and then boom, we're going to defeat it. And now we almost never have to think about the Dark Elves or anything like that again, all wrapped up in a nice bow within two hours. Yeah, and maybe that's what it is because thinking back to it, you have Iron Man, uh, and then even in the sequels, you know, there's references back to the original Iron Man stuff that he still has to work on, and then in the third one, um, it brings it back to you know the the Ten Rings, which is back from the first movie, um, and the same thing with Captain America, you always have the the Bucky stuff going on, uh, but with this one, you you find out there's the Dark Elves, they have the Ether, there's the big war, and then they defeat them, and we haven't heard from them ever again, so. I think you're onto something there. And it's actually something um, our friend Liam talked about in Iron Man 3, where he said how to him, the, I don't know if he, I can't remember if he said it as a negative, but he said how it seems like they're almost retconning certain stuff as they go along, which we know comic books do that a lot where, oh, this didn't work. We'll just sort of forget it and, you know, move on or, or come up with a convenient way to make it what we actually want it to be or whatever. But I feel like if you took this story out, like if you took this film out, yes, you would miss some very important things such as, you know, Loki is now masquerading as Odin. Frigga is dead. Like you would miss some, some very key things, 
But if you took the story of the the dark elves out, like you know, the, and the and the nine realms converging and stuff, and you somehow like you know, the ether obviously still has to stay and whatever. But there's a whole kind of plot of this movie that you could just pull out. And the film franchise is almost exactly the same because, like you said, it's it's not really ever referenced again. It's key elements of the movie are referenced. Like I said, the Frigga thing, the Loki thing, you know, even stuff with, with Jane and, and so on and so forth. But the main plot of the movie, is, as far as I can remember, isn't really ever referenced again. But even to that point, like, okay, so Loki takes over as Odin. Uh, and then nothing happens with that. And then in Thor three, like within the first 10 minutes, they find out that it's been Loki the whole time. So that had nothing. There was no effect on anything. Uh, his mom dying didn't really affect anything unless you want to go into, um, you know, end game where he's kind of broken down a bit, but still didn't really affect anything else throughout the rest of the series. Uh, him and Jane didn't affect anything. She disappeared after this movie and they just had a throwaway line that they broke up. Um, so I mean, yeah, you could aside from the ether, you could take out the entire movie, and it's not going to really affect the entire series at all. And that doesn't. I think that's the the part, at least for me. Like now, talking it out and and sort of thinking about it, I think that's probably the biggest thing that is, you know, maybe why it doesn't rank so highly. And like you, like we said, you know, it's it's also knowing what comes after because. Excuse me again. Realistically, after this is the Winter Sol or yeah, the Winter Soldier, and then after that is Guardians of the Galaxy. Which, as much as this movie, like I said, I loved the effects. I loved the hey, we're gonna see more of the universe of this, and we get to go to different planets and things. Guardians does that far better, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and I I think that the the fact that there are better things out there, even so soon after this there are better things and the fact that the plot doesn't necessarily have any like we said except for the fact that the ether is introduced there aren't necessarily that many lasting effects on things going forward in the franchise yep not at all which i never like i said i never necessarily thought about yeah, I didn't, before nor did i until you mentioned it yeah it's it was always just, I mean, I don't, again, I don't hate it. It's not a bad movie at all, but it's just, it is what it is. And then, yeah, until you started saying something about that, yeah, there's, there's really nothing important in this movie aside from the ether. And then like the, the mid credit scene where they finally confirm that, uh, the, the Tesseract was also infinity stone besides those two things. Yeah. You don't really need this movie at all. And like I said, that's not to take away. Like you said, you like the movie. I like the movie as well. It doesn't rank, you know, high up on on my list. But like I said, there are certain things I like about the movie. There's, like we said, Darcy's very, you know, very funny character, very good character. The the care, like sort of the the after effects of the Avengers on Selvig. I really like. I like the fact that you know they addressed. Um, the fact that he, that Thor came back in the Avengers and didn't even see Jane, you know, it's been however many years since they've seen each other and, you know, she slaps him across the face and whatever. I like the fact that, uh, right before, uh, you know, the, the battle where Loki dies, like he fakes out and then he, it's like a double fake, 
you know, uh, and he, him and Thor were actually on the same team and, and whatever. And I, the, you know, Loki in this entire movie, I think is fantastic. Cause like he's putting on such a, such a show in his, in his captivity thing. And then like, we see the moment where, where Thor goes to him and he says, you know, no more illusions or whatever. And we just see, he's just so broken down and not the Loki that we've come to expect the entire time. And it's, you know, I, I think at least it's definitely a mixture of he's just so defeated. It's definitely the, you know, the fact that his, his mother, arguably one of the only people who truly cared about him, you know, is gone and, and whatever. And it's, it's such a big character moment for him. I think that he finally puts down that illusion and we see him so broken and there's, like I said, there's, there's those character moments that I like about this movie. Cause I don't want to just like kind of shit on it the entire time. <laughs> yeah. The, all, all the Loki stuff was really good. Um, like the, the escape scene. Um, I mean, there's just so many twists and turns that I wasn't expecting. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. And then the, the battle you were mentioning on like that volcanic planet or whatever it was, uh, which the double crossing and the double, double crossing. Uh, yeah. All that was a lot of fun. So um, okay, one thing I, I was thinking about as I was kind of watching this and I, I had to ask your opinion on, um, so, and it was very much set up in the first, uh, Thor and it kind of comes into play a little bit going forward. Like you said, after this, we don't really see Jane Foster much because, Allegedly, there were some problems between Natalie Portman and Marvel, and she didn't necessarily want to come back and, and things like that. Um, but uh, even Odin, at one point in particular, says it in this movie how Thor shouldn't be focusing on a mortal. He should be focusing on what's right in front of him. And of course, we see Lady Sif. And I don't know if you and I have talked about this, but I just got to ask from for your opinion, Lady Sif or Jane Foster, or should I say Jamie Alexander or Natalie Portman? Oh man. Um, I don't know too much about Lady Sif, so I couldn't really, I mean, from what we know about them, uh, Jane seems more interesting. Um, but Lady Sif is more his, his equal, I guess. So I don't know. But, I mean, uh, I don't want to say anything because potential spoilers for comics and future movies, but we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> um, for him, for Thor, I think um, Jane Foster, personally. Um, and that's only because, like, there's a moment towards the end, and it's actually, we find out, of course, that he's talking with, uh, Loki and not the actual Odin. Um, but he said, uh, you know, quote unquote, Odin says, is this you or the woman you love, you know, saying these words when, when Thor basically says that he'd rather be a good man than a great King. And he thinks he could do a better job actually being out there and almost patrolling the, the realms as opposed to sitting on the throne and so on and so forth. And, um, Thor makes mention of the fact that, even when Odin speaks, his wife 
you know, his wife's voice comes out. So, you know, every so often and whatever. And it's that thing of, you know, your, your spouse or, you know, somebody will say, Oh, I opened my mouth today. And, you know, my father came out or whatever, because obviously, you know, the people that are around you and influence you, you know, that you end up saying things and, and whatever. Um, and I think that for Thor, especially to be, uh, a good ruler, I think he would need sort of that moral, uh, thing of, and, and just the humanitarian side of Jane Foster to kind of keep him grounded because I feel like Lady Sif is too much about and not that she isn't, you know, a good person or, or anything like that, but I feel like because she's a soldier, for lack of a better word, that a lot of, as much, you know, she has her caring side and everything, but I feel like she's more of a soldier. So she doesn't necessarily think about things from uh, that moral perspective as much as Jane would. Now, for me, Lady Sif slash Jamie Alexander all the way, 100%. <laughs> I mean, it, it depends. Uh, I've only seen her in Thor and that one, that one tattoo show that she did that ended up not being very good blind spot blind spot yeah that's the one um so i mean eh. but there's times where natalie portman's in in stuff that you know she's just she's just fun to watch and she's really exciting and interesting um like was the one garden state like she oh, plays just like this like yeah, quirky Braff. dirty girl yeah. yeah and it's and yeah so it just depends on on i, mean, I don't know much about jamie alexander to say too much but i do agree with what you're saying how she's more of a soldier and as i was saying she's kind of thor's equal so it, it would be a good fit but at the same time like you said there's no moral ground there and she just wants to go out and you know defeat all the armies um which could lead to uh, a lot of bad things if she had her influence on thor right as a quick aside, uh, so the first time I ever saw Jamie Alexander, there was a show on ABC Family many years ago called Kyle XY, and um, there was a show, the kid, he was a clone, and he didn't have a belly button, that was like the big marketing thing, was like, he didn't have a belly button, like, how was he born, or whatever, and it turns out he was basically a clone, or whatever, and then in season two or three, there's a female version, and it was Jamie Alexander, and so actually they got they got a guy who was like it was an older it was an older man and he was supposed to be who Kyle was cloned from and then there was a woman and it was supposed to be who uh, she was Jesse because he was Kyle XY so she was Jesse XX and it was actually um, Ali Sheedy from all the old like uh, Brat Pack movies and so mm -hmm. like if you think about it it's like oh yeah I could totally see like that she would be like a clone quote unquote from her but so like that was the first time I ever saw Jamie Alexander and I was like okay I need then like every time I would see her in something afterwards I'm like I am going to watch this because I think she is fantastic so yes I, yeah, I was just looking through her IMDB page and I've only seen Thor Thor 2 and I think the first two episodes of Blind Spot, which I didn't realize went on for 95 episodes. Yeah, um, I, I watched season one. It wasn't bad. It was just, I think that that fell into sort of that thing of it should have been a cable show where it's only like 13 episodes instead of, mm -hmm. you know, your full 20 something, per, you know, for standard television. Yeah, as like it 
was definitely intriguing because I love Memento and I love tattoos. So it seemed like a really cool show. Like the whole mystery built around tattoos uh, seemed right up my alley, but I just couldn't get into it. But now that I have some time, once I'm done with uh, uh, Battlestar, maybe I'll give this another shot and see how that works out for me. Like I said, I never got past uh, season one only because I just kind of fell off and, and fell in, you know, the personal stuff and doing the podcasts and things like that. So certain things kind of fell by the wayside. I feel like I'm going to end up giving it a shot one of these days as well. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask your opinion on was cause that, that is, like I said, they, they kind of introduce it in the first Thor and then, um, you know, it's, it's kind of said flat out here and then going forward, we don't necessarily see it as much with Jane Foster only because, um, you know, Natalie Portman isn't around anymore. Um, and we don't really see much of Lady Sif going forward as well because she had, you know, Jamie Alexander had uh, the Blind Spot uh, TV series, so she couldn't necessarily do as many appearances in the movies and stuff. Um, but yeah, I always thought that was sort of an intriguing subplot that they that they didn't really get to finish in my opinion in these movies. Is she even still alive after they destroyed um uh what's it called? Spoilers for Ragnarok obviously. Sorry, but I mean do we know what happened to her? Was I she know, was she on So I know that when again, spoilers for for future stuff. There's there was a moment or not a moment, but in between Avengers three and four, we know what I'm not going to, I'm not going to say too much, but we know there's the big thing that happens where, you know, people, I mean, I would hope that anyone that's listening to this would have seen the whole series right now, but you know, just in case, but, yeah. yeah, just, just on that off chance. Um, but you know, there, there's the big thing that happens at the end of Avengers three, which leads into Avengers four and the, the Russo brothers said she was still around at the time. So okay. I don't remember if there was any like confirmation after that because I don't remember. Like she she hasn't been in anything else since then. Like she hasn't been in any in any of the movies since Thor two. Um, she's made an appearance in uh, in Shield, yes. but I think those were early on in the in season one and maybe season two or three somewhere around there. But yeah, as far as as that goes, we haven't seen her um, in the MCU since Thor two, as far as I know. So, okay, no, wait, I'm sorry. So I'm, I'm on Wikipedia now, and it says, though she does not make an appearance in Infinity War, co-director Joe Russo confirmed that she was among those with the... Okay. okay so I was, I was incorrect in that, that, she, uh, that she, she was involved in that. And that's a whole other discussion that I want to get into when we do the Infinity War episode, which hopefully I can be a part of. Uh, but there's definitely some things that, don't quite work out that I would like to discuss, but <laughs> we'll get there when we get there. Yes. Um, I don't know. I, f I, as odd as it sounds, we're not that far into, into this discussion, except for some of the sort of behind the scenes, like director drama. I really can't think, I think we summed up the movie, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, like I said, there's the dark elves, they, they were there basically since the beginning of time or even before time or whatever, however he says it at the beginning of the movie. They want to take us, take the universe back into darkness. They can only do that 
through the ether. They miss their opportunity. It's now 5,000 years later. The main dark elf has been in a slumber, basically. Um, the ether gets activated by infusing itself with Jane Foster. Um, she then gets taken to Asgard to be protected. Then Thor figures out a way to sneak her off of Asgard using Loki's help. Like we said, fantastic chase scene and everything going on there. Um, and then there's the big battle in London, which I love the fact that it was Greenwich. Um, and like I said, the 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 storyline, I didn't go too much into it, but the storyline with Selvig and how he's still... He seems a bit crazy, especially considering what happened to him in Avengers, where his, you know, Loki and the and the stone messed with his mind a lot and, you know, whatever. And so he seems very crazy, but it's just that he's just on this side of crazy where it actually is making sense. He just can't necessarily formulate all of the words and convince everybody that he's not crazy. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I, th I mean, and like I said, like Loki, you know, fakes his death quote unquote, and, you know, takes over as, as Odin and Thor decides to not take over as King. And that's basically the movie. Like, I, I mean, did I miss any major plot elements in there? There was no major plot elements. So no, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I mean, we, we, I think we got everything covered. Um, the main point was, was the ether and then the, the um the mid credit scene where they take it to the the collector um and they finally confirm that you know we have infinity stones in the in the world and that's kind of where we leap off from there and start kind of getting into like the, the heavy Thanos uh, Infinity War type of stuff. So what did you? I, I know we we kind of talked about it before and you said you're not necessarily a Marvel comics fan at least not as big as as DC but being somebody who knows a lot of this stuff and when you saw the collector the first time, do you remember how you felt? Did you know who the character was? Like, what did you think about the collector being sort of introduced here in the, in the mid credit scene? I had no clue who that was. I mean, I knew it was the actor, but the, the character, I had no idea. Um, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't say that I'm not a big fan of the comics. It just, I've never, when I was younger, I read the X-Men stuff and then I just never got into the Avengers stuff until the movies came out. And I just, I haven't had time to sit down and read any of the comics. I did go through the entire infinity war saga, uh, in the comics, which is, uh, quite a bit different than, I'm sorry, not the infinity war, the, uh, the civil war stuff. I went through that, which was a bit different than the movies were. Um, so I, I know enough about it, but yeah, I had no clue who that was. Um, I did know what the Infinity Stones were. Um, so when they actually finally announced that, I mean, I kind of figured since we've seen the Infinity Gauntlet and we've seen Thanos, um, I kind of expected it was coming. But when they finally announced it, that was a huge thing for me. I was similar in that I also didn't know who the Collector was. Um, I think I had seen like a headline or something in an article about the fact that, uh, you know, the collector was going to be in the movie, but I, I didn't really know. And then afterwards I looked it up and was like, Oh, okay. Like, and there's still so much about like that character and stuff that hasn't really been developed too much in 
the the film side or even well the TV side or anything, but the the cinematic universe side of um, and the weird thing though is it's such like a huge actor or at least for me I think he's a huge actor I don't know if he's really considered that huge anymore but um, he's been one of my favorite actors for a long time so to see him in such a small role was kind of surprising I think that's what they what they kind of do though right because like even in in the first most of the first phase they had Samuel L. Jackson just come in for like little bits throughout and he was a you know I would argue he was a yeah, bigger but, actor that, you know, than, than Del Toro was. Oh, for sure. But they were setting him up as a, as a big, you know, part of the universe. I remember when they first um, started doing the MCU and they announced that they had um, signed on Sam Jackson for a nine picture deal, which was like at the time was unheard of, um, you know, cause it, it wasn't, you know, leading stuff, but he was going to be in there for nine different movies, which um, everyone's like, Oh my God, the nine movies. That's insane. Um, but they were building him up as a big character. But Benicio del Toro, I mean, he's—I think he's a pretty huge person. And then to have him in what three small scenes throughout the whole series so far, uh, I just kind of shocked that they do someone so big. But I think it's kind of like the old Batman series, or even The Simpsons back when it was good, was that people just want to be a part of it. They don't care what they were doing. Um, they just want to you know I'll be the guy that pops out of the window when they're climbing up the wall, or I'll do a a quick cameo in Simpsons. Just they want to be a part of that, you know, that uh, experience. I know, and and you probably know this story as well. Uh, Kevin Smith, of whom we're both a fan, he uh, has told the story before that uh, to him the the true sign of cool and that you've made it is being on The Simpsons. And he was referenced once or twice on The Simpsons, and then he also wanted to be on um, Law and Order because that you know from being from Jersey and and that sort of stuff and then he ended up being a, and all he wanted was to be the guy who leads them to the guy who leads them to the suspect or whatever and then he got mm-hmm. that opportunity to be on an episode or whatever and so i would i would probably say that's true but for for del toro like i would agree with with what you said like it would you would think he would want a bigger role and i always thought they were going to develop that into a bigger role i don't know if maybe he got other opportunities or maybe it was sort of um like i said with natalie portman where she kind of had like a falling out with marvel and we know that various directors and writers and things don't necessarily see eye to eye with what kevin feige wants for the series i i don't know i'm just wondering if maybe that's sort of what happened uh in this case and I can't imagine because he's been back for multiple other movies. So if it was that big of an issue, you know, they either replace if they wanted like a bigger like a bigger role for him, um, and there was issues, they could have replaced him with someone else, kind of like they did with Rhodey. Um, but I mean, he's been back, so there's obviously no you know ill will between them two of them. So maybe it was just a small role, and he just wanted to have his little scene in in the Marvel stuff and. I don't know. Which, to be fair, I I couldn't I wouldn't blame him for you know yeah. I mean like you said it's it's like The Simpsons or whatever where it's the big pop culture juggernaut at the time and you know you wanna you wanna be a part of it like how many thing you know people have done that, and I don't just mean Stan Lee with all of his cameos but people have have done that where it's just hey I just want to be in you know one scene here or there or just put me in the background or whatever you know just because they want to be a part of you know, to say, oh, I was in a Marvel movie at this point in time when it's, you know, the biggest thing in movies. 
it could also be something that maybe he did for his kids because, I mean, he's a, more of an R-rated actor where he does more violent stuff. And so maybe his kids are fans of Marvel and that he wanted to be something, you know, that they could watch him in. I know that uh, for – for um, what's it called? It's Winter Soldier. Um, that's why Robert Redford went for that role. He's like, I don't – you know, he's – he's big enough actor where he doesn't really need to do a Marvel movie, but his kids wanted to watch Marvel. And he's like, most of my movies are either, you know, adult romantic stuff or, you know, spy thriller things that kids can't really watch. So he wanted to do it for his kids or his grandkids or whatever. So maybe it was something like that. Who knows? I don't know. Um, I had to double check. I, I actually, I was correct in my thinking. He actually has a kid with Rod Stewart's daughter. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, and for the record, so Del Toro is 53. Um, Kimberly Stewart, which is Rod Stewart's daughter, is 40. It's not that big of a difference, 13 years. But, yeah, they uh, they have a, a kid together. And I thought that was the case. I just wasn't 100% sure. Um, but so really quick, I don't know how – I mean, I'm sure you know, you know about it and, and some of the, the listeners might as well. Um, but I've, I've mentioned a few times the, you know, behind the scenes, whatever. So from what I remember and just doing like a quick glance on Wikipedia, um, Kenneth Branagh didn't seem, I don't want to say he didn't seem interested in coming back to direct, but he, I think he kind of felt that same thing that a lot of them felt, which was, um, there's so much that goes into making one of these that to so quickly jump into another one, because from the studio's perspective, uh, it's as easy as this is a hit, let's make another one. And then they, you know, put the money and the, and the time and everything else, but they hire it out to a director and, you know, with Kevin Feige as the producer and probably one or two other producers to be there for actual day to day stuff, you know, whatever. And it's just as easy as, like almost any other job where corporate says, let's do more, and then you put it on sort of the lower people. And of course on film, you know, the director or the producer is like your top ranking person, but it's still they're hiring it out for a quote unquote lower person to do. So um, he didn't seem that keen on immediately signing on, and he eventually didn't. And then there was some back and forth as to who was going to direct. And at one point, um, Patty Jenkins uh, was supposed to do the film and Natalie, from what I remember, and please correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, Steve, or if you happen to remember it a different way or whatever. Um, but Natalie Portman was very excited to work with Patty Jenkins and then Jenkins left. Natalie Portman was not necessarily that happy. And then, um, that's kind of why she ended up not necessarily returning to the franchise because she was kind of upset that a female director who had a clear vision. And actually I read sort of a quote from her where she said, uh, she, so according, I'm just going to read right from Wikipedia. Um, Jenkins felt she could not have made a good film quote out of Thor two, because I wasn't the right director. I could have made a great Thor. If I could have had, if I could have done the story that I was wanting to do, but I don't think I was the right person 
to make a great Thor out of the story they wanted to do, unquote. Jenkins had, had intended to create a film based on the premise of Romeo and Juliet, where Jane was stuck on Earth with Thor forbidden from coming to save her. After Thor eventually does travel to Earth, he and Jane would have discovered that Malekith was hiding the dark energy inside of Earth because he knows that Odin doesn't care about Earth, and so he's using Odin's disinterest in Earth to trick him. I don't, I don't think that sounds like a bad movie at all, but that's a, you know, apparently not what they wanted to make, so they ended up hiring um, Alan Taylor, who, again, from what I remember reading and sort of um, as the as the one uh, wrestling podcast that I listen to calls it rumor and innuendo, uh, basically that Kevin Feige sort of stepped in and and directed Alan Taylor on how to direct the film. And that may be another reason why people sort of look a bit more negative on this, because it seems to be another instance of studio involvement um, kind of hindering a director's vision or or whatever but that's at least from my recollection and just like I said sort of browsing Wikipedia very quickly um, some of the behind the scenes drama of this movie and of course leading forward like we said the fact that Natalie Portman doesn't come back and we've actually heard similar things with directors of some of the future films as well where after working on something for so long, uh, Edgar Wright with Ant-Man and whatever, like they end up dropping out because it's not what Marvel or Disney or Kevin Feige or however you want to say it ends up wanting for the film. Man, I get it as a director, you want to, you know, do your thing, but when you sign on to something like this, you got to kind of realize that there's a set story that you're going to do. Um, and if you don't like it, there's the door. Um, the one thing I don't understand is that for Thor Ragnarok, I guess they, they learned from these first two Thors that whatever they were doing wasn't really working. And they said, you know, do whatever you want. And then they made that piece of wonderful movie that was Ragnarok. Um, <laughs> for those who may not remember, uh, and and I, I believe, I'm pretty sure we've talked about it on mic as much as we've talked about it off mic. Steve, not a fan of Thor Ragnarok, but wants to be on the no. episode just to crap on it when the time comes. Well, not just to crap on it, just to, to speak my, my mind on it. It's, it's, I don't know, the thing that just bugs me is that I think Thor 1 and Thor 2 are good movies. They're entertaining. Uh, they, they weren't the best, but they were, they were good. Um, and then Taikia Watiti, whatever his name is, just says, you know what? Those didn't do good. I'm going to do my own thing. And then everyone came and said, okay, do what you want. And he's, I'm going to make it a completely different tone than the movies. It doesn't, it's not going to fit with anything else that that's been in Marvel before. And I'm just going to do my thing. And they let him and I don't like the outcome of it, but whatever. It's, it's still a decent enough movie where it doesn't ruin the whole franchise, but it's just one of those things. So, um, so to go back to what you were saying about being the director now, from what I understand, Alan Taylor was a director on um, like Game of Thrones. So, and again, I've talked about it various times on the on the podcast series how these are like a TV show because you know, like I said, like they're serialized and you know one feeds into another, and and Kevin Feige sort of has his. Um, you know, the, the layout of what everything is and, and whatever. So you would think, and again, and, and I'm just, I'm just saying of things of how I remember them, 
uh, from the time. But you would think that somebody who comes from TV would understand that concept of the writer or the producer or whatever is the ultimate be-all, end-all, as opposed to most film concepts where the director is the end-all, be-all, or whatever. So it seems kind of odd to me that, that there would be that clash because... Uh, you know, being a, a TV director, you would think he would understand. But I think part of it as well, if I had to take a guess, would be at this time, I believe because Joss Whedon was was getting ready to do um, uh, uh, Age of Ultron. And from what I remember, and I think I talked about it in phase one, how he sort of, um, he would go in and he would kind of him and, and Kevin Feige almost side by side to a certain extent where he would go in and say, change this or do that or whatever, or, you know, he was going to rewrite something here or there, you know, whatever, uh, you know, on not necessarily a gigantic scale, but on a smaller scale so that it would fit in more with what they were going to be doing with Avengers because he was already, you know, preparing for that. And I think there was, you know, similar stories with this where not necessarily that he came in and, and said change this or change that, but it just the, that whole thing of, well, we need certain things to fit in with where we're going with the future as opposed to filming this movie, you know? And um, again, to sort of, uh, I referenced uh, Kevin Smith before, and he directed a pilot for a TV series called Reaper, once uh, many many years ago and he told the story on his uh, on his podcast back then and it was before it was at the time he decided he wasn't going to direct anything that he didn't write and then two or three years later he did um, cop out uh, and but at the time they the the writers of the of the the show said well you know we want this shot or we want you to do this or whatever and he wasn't used to that because his thought was, let me get what's right for the thing I'm filming. But he wasn't necessarily thinking of it in terms of this has to set up this grander thing. And I think that's one of the, the things, at least from everything I've read, that sort of, I don't want to say falls apart, but is one of the big deterrents, I guess, for some directors working on these films is because they're looking at it from the individual basis of the film they're working on, whereas you have Kevin Feige, Joss Whedon, now the Russo brothers, who are looking at it from the overall perspective. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's... it's... It's got to be daunting, especially I was looking through the Alan, Alan Taylor's. I've never really heard of him before. Um, this was the first movie he's done. So maybe he came onto this thinking like, oh, I'm finally going to do a movie and do my thing. Um, and then found it wasn't too much different from TV. Um, perhaps he should have worked on a different movie first. But um, I did see he directed an episode of Lost. So that's exciting. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it was uh, Everybody Hates Hugo. Everybody Loves Hugo. One of the two of them. Everybody hates Hugo. He directed that one. So, um, but yeah, I don't, I mean, it's, it's gotta be a challenge coming into, um, one of these films, especially later on in the series when so much stuff has been established and you kind of gotta, you know, deal with everyone else's, you know, baggage from before and kind of make that work for what's planned in the future. I mean, especially this one, it's kind of like almost smack in the middle of everything. Um, 
So I'd have to come onto that and be like, this is what we have set up so far. This is what we have planned for the future. And you got to make it work for the whole thing, um, but also make it your, your own vision. That's got to be a tough job to do. And I feel like to a certain extent, that's almost what happened even with Age of Ultron. As much as Age of Ultron, you know, we'll get there when we when we talk about it. But as much as that was, um, you know, sort of the next well, Iron Man, or Ant-Man, sorry, Ant-Man technically, but, you know, uh, Age of Ultron was was sort of the bookend of of the phase, or, you know, just about the bookend of the phase. They also had, to, you know, Joss Whedon also had to set up everything that was going to be in phase three, and I think he eventually, that's one of the reasons that he kind of stepped away, was because it was so daunting, not only, excuse me, not only keeping track of what he was doing and what all the other films were doing, but he then had to set up things for the future as well. Whereas with the first Avengers, as much as it was incredibly popular by that time, it was, we're finishing out the phase and he could do this grandiose story of, you know, the aliens invading and all that sort of stuff. And then it ends as I've always said with, with things that I like about him with that little bit of room where things can continue. Whereas with age of Ultron, it was very, it wasn't even an end. It was almost just another, just another chapter in the middle sort of thing. Like you said, this was, so I I think that even he kind of uh, fell victim to that at a certain point. And that's a little bit of why he, um, he stepped away uh, as well. And it has to be, it has to be incredibly uh, difficult, I would think, to, like you said, to sort of come in in the middle of, of something like that. And, and I just, I couldn't imagine doing it. And I think that for what this film is, as we talked about, I think Alan Taylor did a very good job. I just think that there are certain things that looking back on it now, it just, it doesn't hit as well as some of the other films, in my opinion, as we've said sort of this whole time. Agreed. Um, the only other thing I can think of, we talked about the mid credit scene. The end credit scene is, is not anything necessarily major. In my opinion, there's um, the, you know, Thor returns for the kiss. I thought that was a really nice thing, especially knowing that we don't really see Jane Foster that much or arguably at all going forward. I thought it was really nice that there was sort of that, that um, sort of period at the end of that sentence that, you know, he did come back and they did have their kiss. Then there's that creature that, you know, running around chasing birds and things. I thought that was really good. Um, Of course, we always uh, mention the Stan Lee cameo Um, in this. Of course, it was uh, uh, Selvig took his shoe because there was something about shoes in this movie. I never even realized it because Selvig uses two shoes to um, sort of explain what was happening with the convergence when he was in the um, insane asylum, basically, or locked up, or however you want to say it, whatever the, the, the correct term is to say in the year 2020. Um, he used two shoes there. Darcy wanted to kept, uh, keep throwing shoes into the, the loop, and then even when they found the other side of that a little later... Uh, Thor mentions there being so many shoes there. I don't know what the deal was with shoes. I know this wasn't a Tarantino movie. That would have explained it. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I'd never noticed that before, so Um, weird. But yeah, so that's the the Stan Lee cameo is uh, Selvig took one of his shoes. Um, But 
yeah, I can't think of anything that we may have missed. I know for people out there, this is an episode that's a bit on the shorter side. Um, and, you know, well, before I go into that, Steve, is there anything that we that we have missed that you can think of off the top of your head in regards to Thor The Dark World? Nothing major. Just wanted to point out that uh, one of the Dark Elves, Algrim, was played by Mr. Echo. I did notice that. I was, I was going to say, especially because... Uh, you and I and, and a few of our friends sort of had the, the big conversation about him uh, when we did the Lost, uh, well, the finale of Lost on Lost with Friends. We had a, a good conversation about him and, and some of the other actors for a good, like, 20 minutes or so. Um, but, yes, I did notice, because I to this day, I still cannot pronounce his gigantic hyphenated surname i just refer to him as Ottawale, the guy who played mr echo on lost because i will probably never be able to pronounce his surname but yes i did notice that because in my mind i jokingly thought that when we post about this episode on social media should we tag him but if he happened to click on it and sees that we've also done lost stuff he would probably block us because he tends to do that to people does it really? I've seen several lost fan accounts on Twitter who have tagged like it's it's just promoting, hey, this was a great episode or hey, wasn't Mr. Echo a great character? And then like two or three days later, they will screenshot that he blocked them on Twitter. That's weird. Yes. Um, so, yes, in my mind, I was I was thinking, oh, I wonder if we should do that. But then I'm, I thought, oh, maybe not. Um but if anybody else out there uh, perhaps has some different thoughts or maybe we missed your uh, favorite part of this movie or maybe you, you have something where uh, you, know, you can convince us um, on maybe a different outlook on this movie, uh, I'm going to kick it to you, Steve, and say, where can they find you all across social media? I am on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, it's Hollywood underscore IRL. Uh, I mostly, well, not mostly, I only do filming location photography. For me, uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at JPGRB. You can follow my secondary Instagram at JPCS.PICS. Uh, I try to take at least one picture a day of things I'm doing, a lot of food, food stuff going on there, and my personal. Um, uh, thoughts and feelings on things going on in my life as well. Um, for all clock shelves related things on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, it's at clock shelves. That's C L O C K S H E L V E S. Again, that's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, if you want to support patreon.com slash clock shelves, once again, C-L-O-C-K-S-H-E-L-V-E-S. And the central hub for everything where you can hear all past episodes, get more information about everybody involved with all things that we do. It's clockshelves.com, C-L-O-C-K-S-H-E-L-V-E-S dot C-O-M. And I will wrap it up by saying thank you, Steve, once again for being on here. Make sure everybody to uh, check in. We're doing, we're expanding the show as ever, doing the TV and the film and all that sort of stuff. So until next time, I will say thanks for listening, true believers.